Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, tech people, and founders who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Remember, we do have a website at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. So if you don't have time to listen to the entire episode, or if you're the kind of person who prefers to read, then you can head over to that and you will have access and you will be able to read the full conversation. You will also have links to all the resources we mentioned, and you will also get all the contact information from each guest. So it's a really a good complement to listening to the episode because you can check more information on the page and it's free. You don't have to enter any email address whatsoever. You can have access to that anytime. So we haven't really approached the subject of analytics and data analytics in this podcast. And this is why I've asked Dan Mago uh, to be on the show. So he's the former head of marketing of Kissmetric. So he knows a thing or two about analytics. Kissmetric is a software a solution to measure things and how people behave throughout your, your customer journey. He's now the CMO of Effing Amazing, which is an analytics and growth consultancy company. And he's been consulting for companies like Wistia, Contactually, Crowdrise, and many more. So if you're overwhelmed by the amount of data you need to track, if you don't know where to start, this episode is ready for you. We're going to go through a step-by-step -step methodology, as usual, a practical guide on how to track the right metrics, the right KPIs throughout your funnel. This is, once again, very practical, very actionable episode, and I know you will learn a lot from it. So have a listen and let me know what you think. So Dan, pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, when I was researching about you a little bit more in more details, I went to your LinkedIn profile and I can tell you, I've never seen a LinkedIn profile with that many jobs, that many, you know, experience in a row. So congrats. Thank you very much. Yeah, we uh, I include a lot of different things that I've done on there. So it's definitely a pretty well built out program. So yeah, if you, if you check out Dan, uh, Dan's profile that we linked in the show notes, you can check. You have to click maybe 10 times on show more to see the actual full list of experience. So it's pretty cool. Right. We are not going to talk about LinkedIn today. We are going to talk about analytics and in particular, how to actually implement it the right way in your business. Uh, whether you have a big business or a small one, we should find a way for um, to, to implement a, a kind of a step-by-step -step methodology that people can use in their business, right? Um, I don't know if it's me. Uh, I don't know if I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd, but I've never been able to work in a business with a business or being in touch with a business that had a good process to measure things, to measure performance online from start to finish. Am mm -hmm. I the only one or is it no, true? I mean, uh, I mean, I definitely think it's a, it's a struggle for most companies. It's really, really hard to get your mindset into tracking everything. And it's a practice that most people don't really follow. I mean, marketing is full of creative people that are excited to have ideas and make change in the world through those ideas. The problem is, is a lot of marketers aren't necessarily the most technical people in the world, and they don't think about the world and basically events or properties. Um, we luckily have worked with companies that are fairly data-driven, and we've taken them to a whole new level. Uh, and we've also worked with companies that have no data at all, and then we make them extremely data-driven, and now they rely on that data heavily to do everything. So you're not alone. I would say 98% of businesses have no idea what their data says. Uh, you, you said this word, 
And I'm not sure that many people really get this word data-driven. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if you ask companies to say, are you a data-driven organization? 98% will say, yes, absolutely we are. Yeah. Uh, but only 2%. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a rough number that you're saying here, but it's, it's true that the vast majority are not really data-driven. So hopefully in this episode, we'll be able to go and maybe help them to get one step closer to, to this actual data-driven organization. Um, so what are the biggest problems here? Coming? Uh, to me, companies and marketers in particular are absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of data out there. But that's a fact, right? Analytics, uh, hot jar, heat mapping, surveys. There's so many like qualitative, quantitative, quantitative data out there. Uh, it's, it's quite overwhelming. So let's go through this process together. What, what is the process to implement you know, analytics so you can focus on the right data and you don't get shitty data out of it uh, so you can have data you can trust, basically? Let's go step by step. You go into a yeah. business. What do you do first and foremost? So the first thing you have to do as a business is you want to understand what are your primary goals and what are your objectives, right? Each business's goals and objectives are entirely different. And that's going to help you decide on which analytics tool you need to use or which architecture you need to set up that tool. So for an example, right, if you're a mobile gaming company, you probably don't want to use a tool like Kissmetrics. It just doesn't fit that data architecture. But if you are a mobile gaming company, you may want to use a tool like Flurry or Mixpanel or Amplitude, which are more set up for that type of marketplace. Meanwhile, on the flip side of that, if you are, let's say, an e-commerce company, Kissmetrics can be extremely helpful. But at the same token, Mixpanel is not going to be as effective for an e-commerce company. So you really do need to focus on first, like, what is my problem? What is my right? What is my business use case? And then figure out which tool is going to be best for you. Now, obviously, it's not easy to basically create that and come up with that. Um, we actually are rolling out an analytics quiz tool, which you can take a quick five-minute quiz uh, for your business, and it will tell you which analytics tool you should use because everybody's going to tell you you should use my tool, whether it's good for your business or not, because their sales rep just wants to get their deal flow. But the first thing is is making sure that you have the right tool for the right job. I would say that's definitely step one. Okay, right. So let's let's talk about SaaS in particular and software as a service businesses or businesses selling online that are like related to software or, or digital products. What are the typical tools that you see companies using uh, that fits the, this particular use case? For digital companies or what kind of digital companies? Just make so, sure so let's start software as a service companies, right? Okay, great question. So for software as a service company, if your objective is to start tracking marketing activities, obviously you need to have Google Analytics. I mean, Google Analytics should be installed on everything no matter what. Kissmetrics, from a marketing organization perspective, is one of my favorite tools for marketers to use and be able to build out all their tracking. Now, Kissmetrics is really, really flexible in the fact that it was built so a marketer could actually install events and can install properties without having to bug a developer all the time. So Kissmetrics is a great tool for that. Now, if you're a SaaS company and you're looking for product analytics and you're trying to figure out product stuff, Kissmetrics still does a good job, but there's tools like Amplitude, which may provide you another step of granularity and another way of tracking because they have a different way of thinking about the data. So it's very rare that you're only using one tool. So this is where like a tool like Kissmetrics and Amplitude combined together, you're using both. Uh, probably integrated using Segment, which Segment.com is a really good data piping tool. If you use Segment, you can integrate into both tools with only writing one bit of code. Um, but that would be like a stereotypical setup. Um, but that's not everybody. Some people like Mixpanel's visualizations, so they choose Mixpanel. The one caveat, just so everybody understands, the reason why I don't recommend Mixpanel for most SaaS companies 
is due to the fact that they're not good at multi-device. So for an example, Kissmetrics and Amplitude can both merge identities across multiple devices to create one profile. Mixpanel can only have one identity at a time, and it literally, if you start out on mobile, and then you sign up on mobile, and then come to a desktop, and then you play around on the site on desktop, then log in, everything you did on that desktop before your first login just gets deleted. So their multi-device attribution isn't as good as the other ones. And in a SaaS world, a lot of your stuff is across multiple devices. You know what? I'm actually quite surprised that you're starting this step-by-step this -step by mentioning tools. Um, because I would, in my head, I would say maybe this is one of the latest thing you need to do before you actually know what what you're trying to track, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's actually an interesting take. Um, so moving well, on I from, mean, yeah, I, sorry, go just on. to say, I, I definitely think you need to focus on what are your business objectives, which are what are you trying to track, and then picking a tool around that. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of companies, if you start out with the building your analytics spec right? Like all the things you need to track, that's part of planning um, and definitely things like that. Each one of these tools track things differently. So if you build out a crazy analytics spe specifications guide, the way Kissmetrics tracks compared to the way that Amplitude tracks are completely different. So you're going to wind up having to go through that process twice. So I recommend to think a lot about what your objective is with this tool. What are you trying to track? Like what are the KPIs? What are the things you need to measure from a business perspective? Because that tool is going to be very, very specific on how you need to set up its tracking. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, let's say I, I'm not a marketer. I don't have a big business. I want to launch. I have a project that is small enough or a website that is like, you know, selling ebooks or something, something smaller. What do you recommend to, to those people who use like, have side projects that are not necessarily a big company yet or they want to start a startup? What's the typical process there? And does it differ from, from what we just said around SaaS companies? Definitely, for sure. So if you're a smaller company, I mean, budget is obviously the biggest thing that you have to focus on. So you're going to want to use a tool that doesn't cost a lot of money. That would immediately basically put like Kissmetrics out of the way because Kissmetrics is a minimum of $500 a month. They no longer offer any other plans. This is where tools like Mixpanel come in. They do have a free trial. Amplitude offers up to 10 million free events. But at the same time, those tools may be too complicated. So as a smaller business, you're probably going to be looking more at your Google Analytics because it's free. You can still get a crap ton of value out of it. And then other tools like Hotjar, which are a little bit more cost effective. They enable you to build a funnel. You don't need tons of data when you're doing a simple ebook business. You just need to understand your funnel, right? And Hotjar does that for 20 bucks a month. And then you also have Google Analytics, which you can do it for free. So you want to make sure that you choose a cost effective tool in that use case. Just to just as a to be honest with my listeners here and to make sure that I'm very transparent. You don't know that, uh, but I do work for Hotjar full time as well, right? Oh. Uh, on side of the podcast, and I know you didn't know, but which is really honest of you to mention <laughs> Hotjar. Uh, we do have also uh, Hotjar ho also has a free plan, uh, by the way, not only uh, a pay plan, um, and you can do quite a lot with it. So that's the parenthesis. So okay, when you're, I like that when you're a smaller business uh, and you're starting out, what you want to really care about is understanding your your customers and understanding your funnel. You don't really, you shouldn't really have to go further than that unless you're very analytical driven yourself and, and, and this is something that, that you enjoy. Um, right, move on to, so step one would really be understand your key, your KPIs, understand what you want to measure. What are, from your experience, the key numbers, the key KPIs that, uh, that companies usually rely on mostly? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you're a stereotypical SaaS product or any kind of product, the first metric that everybody's looking at is probably the number of people who are signing up to your program. 
right? So you can definitely look at this from, hey, how many leads do we collect? So how many emails do we get? Then how many of those people actually sign up for our product or actually purchase our product? So those are going to be three metrics right there. The number of prospects or leads, the number of people that sign up, and then as well as the number of people who purchase. So those are really simple, simple metrics. I don't really care as much about traffic or pages per session or session lengths. If I'm a media company, I may, but as a SaaS product, not that big of a deal. Um, as a SaaS product, the next one really you have to be focused on is going to be MRR, which is monthly recurring revenue, and then churn. Those two things are going to be massive for you. Now, lifetime value is obviously a, a derivative of those two things. You understand your monthly recurring revenue. You understand how much of that you churn on a monthly basis. You can build a lifetime value metric out of that. Now, if you don't understand your lifetime value, you have no idea how to build advertising. You don't know how much you can spend to acquire a customer. So I would say MRR, churn, lifetime value are all about equal on the metrics that you have. But between those six metrics, as a small business, that's really all that you have to focus on in the beginning. Obviously, you can look at your total cancellations and stuff like that, but you have to do that to get your churn number anyways. Um, so I think those are all really, really good points. And aside from SaaS and software companies, uh, out of your client base or from your own experience, what would be the other type of companies that would really suffer from the problems you're solving nowadays with analytics? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you another use case. So we, we work with a client called ForksOverKnives.com. Uh, they made a really, really famous documentary back in 2011. If you haven't seen it, jump on Netflix and check it out. Uh, it's been the number one, on net, number one documentary on Netflix for years. Really, really good. They're a media company. So they have a subscription service for a meal planning tool. They also have an online cooking school. They also have a mobile app. So they have a lot of other problems that they have to solve inside of those products. But as a media company that drives traffic and then, of course, puts that traffic into a product, a big focus of ours is figuring out how long do people spend time on the site? How many articles do they read in their first session? How many articles do they need to read before they actually give us their email? I mean, email is a key driver of that business because we have so many different products. So for us, when we run an A-B test and we're trying to validate metrics, a lot of that's more focused on how many sessions did they have, how many pages did they view in that session, and then how did those metrics change? Because we can directly correlate the number of pages per session affects our revenue dramatically. If we can get somebody hooked on our content and coming back on a weekly, daily, or even monthly basis, we're able to get more opportunities to push that person into one of our many products. So that's another place where it's a little bit different, where you do actually track number of pages visited per session or session length or bounce rate. That's interesting. Um, so step one, you pick your KPI. Step two, you would actually look at the tools available out there and see if they actually can track what you want to track, right? And, and if they fit your budget. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, instead of earlier, I had said step one is obviously picking the tool kind of, but you're correct. The first step is figuring out what am I trying to track? What are those KPIs I need to get done? And then the second step would pick a tool that's able to do that. Because there's a, uh, for an example, there's a tool called Heap. Heap is an amazing tool you drop on your website and it just tracks everything. Heap does a great job at just tracking everything. Where it really drops the ball, it doesn't have a lot of good visualizations. It doesn't give you as many visualizations or ways to splice that data as maybe a mixed panel would. So this is what you really have to understand is can the visualizations give me the answers that I need? Is this a tool that's easy for me and my team to understand? Right. So step three, what would it be typically when you start with a new client or even even for like smaller companies you don't necessarily work for? Like what is the usual step three after this? Great question. And that's going to be building our analytics and integration specification guide. It's called an analytics spec. Every company like Mixpanel, Amplitude, Kissmetrics all have their own version of what this analytics spec guy has. 
We even have our own proprietary one internally here that we use across our clients. What you need to do is you actually need to go through your site as if you were a customer and then document all the things that your customer would do. Now, I don't think tracking button clicks are going to be the thing that you want to do. You're mainly tracking, does somebody make it to a page in the funnel? Do they go to the pricing page? Which, which product or which plan did they click on the pricing page? You want to track things like signed up, right? And then obviously you want to track purchase. You want to track those key events by coming up with an analytics specification guide. This is going to track the events that you send, the properties that are sent along with an event. Uh, an event is simply an action, and then a property is the adjective of that action. So if I jumped, that would be the event. I jumped, right? Jumped would be the action. The properties would then say how high, and then high would be two feet. The two feet would be a property. So it's kind of a verb with an adjective. Uh, and then, of course, you want to start to then start figuring out what do we want to know about our customers and adding that along the way. So in the sign-up form, if they say what country they're from, that would also be a property that we want to track, not only to the event, but also something we want to store with that user's identity. So doing the planning of what the integration is your third step. Right. And you would actually advise for marketers in charge of this or whoever else is in charge of this to actually go through the, the experience uh, herself, right? Absolutely. So it's definitely a complicated process. And if you haven't done it before, go to fnamazing.com, go to our resources section, and there's a webinar that I have recorded there, which teaches you how to build a specifications guide and even give you a template to use. Um, it's not easy to do these, especially as a marketer, because marketers don't naturally think like an engineer. Um, and what we have to do is the specification guide is simply made so we can hand it to engineering to get integrated. So we have to make sure that we go through a process in which is good for not only the marketer, but also the engineer as well, because they're the ones who typically are going to do the integration. And if the engineer doesn't like you or if you don't make this correctly, the engineer, engineer may never do it. Yeah. So you want to speak the same language between engineers, engineering and, and marketing, right? Absolutely. So and that webinar goes, the webinar that I created, uh, it's how to create insights and action out of analytics. Um, really breaks down how do you bring this to that engineer? What is the process that you need to do to get it to the right person? Okay, so let's say we have that done and it's well documented and, and our engineers are happy with it. What's the next step? So you then have to do sprint planning. So you do not want to do all of your integration at one time. It needs to be spread out over a six or a 12 month period. If you start out by doing everything all at once, you wind up with a lot of bad data and a lot of stuff you just can't trust. So we typically break our analytics integrations into a monthly, uh, one-week sprint per month. So for an example, we would choose our, in the first sprint, we would choose our six to 10 critical events. So critical events are going to be more like they signed up, they purchased, they got billed, they canceled, um, things that are critical to understand your funnel. That first sprint, that's all the de developers build. They build that in a staging environment. We then go in and audit it to make sure everything was correct. Because if you even have one event with a capital and another one without a capital, that's going to be treated as two separate events in your analytics tool. So everything has to be 100% on point. Then push to production, start building reports, getting value out of that tool. And that's really all you want to do in that first month is just use that data you have and don't try to go crazy. If you create 300 events, you're just creating noise and it's not healthy. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um... I wasn't expecting you to say it necessarily, but it's, it's the right thing. Uh, from my experience, that's definitely what happened many times. But I'm curious about one thing, right? Let's say you, you, you come in into a business or like some of our listeners might already have data analytics in place and, and they don't really like it. It's too much. They don't really know how to make sense of it. They don't really know if the data, uh, they can trust it. 
How do you deal, how would you recommend our listeners to deal with the situation where they already have something in place? Do they start from scratch with no report for like three months uh, until it's built? How do you advise people to do this? So in essence, they have they have data coming in, but they don't trust it and it's breaking is what you're saying? Yeah, and there are too many of it, like too, too much data. They don't really know where to start. Like they want to start from you know, something that is cleaner, I would say. Absolutely. Uh, and that's definitely hard, right, is to try to clean up something that's already in place. In a lot of these different analytics tools, you can hide events. And that's actually what we've done to help companies kind of get started is next thing you know, we come into a company. There's a client where we start next week. They have some 300 different events, which they're already tracking. They track almost every single click on their website, which is just noise. So the first step that we're going in is doing a list of all of the different events that they have. And then what we're going to be doing is shutting off all of the events which are not needed right now to be visible in the UI. A lot of these tools will allow you to actually hide events so that way you don't see it in the reporting layer. And that's really what you want to do because you want to get rid of all that noise so you can focus on what those key events are. Those events will still be collected in most cases. Um, you just don't want to see them in your reporting layer so that way you can stay focused. So I would actually say that this step probably needs to appear before maybe in step two or step three. Like once you know what measurements you want and once you know, once you've done an audit and you know what, what stuff you're actually measuring that are useless, this is probably the step to actually, actually shut it off before even moving to anything, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that that's part of step three with figuring out what's in your analytics specification guide. If you have a good analytics spec, you can see that I have all these crappy events that I don't need to track. You can just turn those things off. Um, one thing I will make sure you understand is that if you do want to have an event removed, it does need to be removed from the code unless you're using segment or it will count against your, your pricing and whatever tool. Uh, segment is one of the only tools that enables you to disable an event from even being accepted. Right. So I do know what segment is. I haven't implemented it in any of, of the business I was involved in, but I do know what it is. So let's explain to the listeners who don't necessarily know what it is, like if, in, in simple terms, what, it, what does it do? Absolutely. So every single tool that we work with on the internet, we added JavaScript to our site. So for an example, if you've ever used any Google Analytics, you added their JavaScript to your website. That's considered to be their syntax for their tracking tool. Now, if you add Kissmetrics, once again, they come with their own JavaScript, which has their own syntax. It's their way of writing their language to work with their tool. Now, the problem that happens is in, in the real world, when you have 15 tools on your website, that means there's 15 different syntaxes that we have to maintain. So for an example, if you want to send an event into Google Analytics, you would write GAM push compared to Kissmetrics, which is uh, KM.track. Now, these are two different syntaxes. So for an example, when a user signs up, to make it work across all 15 of those tools, I have to write 15 different lines of code that send that syntax into those individual tools. Now, what happened was, is about seven years ago, Segment thought this was a really, really bad idea. It may have been a little longer than that, but they figured that basically what we should be able to do is just write analytics.track. We send that to Segment, and then Segment basically becomes the Rosetta Stone or the translation tool that then converts it into the other tool's syntax. Now, what this enables you to do as a marketer and a developer is you write one syntax on your entire website. You only have to put their JavaScript, then you write analytics.track for all of your events or analytics.identify for all of their, their identify calls. As those things go into Segment, Segment is then able to convert those into whatever native syntax that that tool would have. And then, of course, process the data in those tools. So instead of writing 15 different lines of code to track your sign-up event, you write one line of code, it goes into Segment, Segment then pipes it into other tools. 
We call it the Rosetta Stone of APIs because basically it just translates everything that I'm saying in one language into 15 other language on the other side. And would you actually use a segment for with most of your clients? We actually require segment to be used on most of our clients. It's very rare that we don't require segment. And the only times that we don't really require segment is when it's a company that's not running a heavy marketing stack. So for an example, a company which is running two or three different tools, it's not really a big deal for us to use segment. Meanwhile, on a lot of our clients, they're running 15, 20, 30 different tools. What we're doing on those clients is requiring them to use segment because it reduces the amount of money they actually have to pay us. So what happens is if I have to write 15 different lines of code for your tools, that's going to cost you a lot of money. Now, if I only have to write one line of code, that's going to cost you about 15 times less. So if I have to write it once per segment and it works with 15 tools, I just saved you a ton of money, even though you may have to pay segment $2,000 a month. To have me integrate 15 tools and maintain it, it's going to cost like $20,000 a month. And that's really where the cost analysis and cost benefit comes from, is that if you look at it from a developer cost perspective, $150,000 a year, and you pay one developer to maintain your stack for a year, it's $150K. If you have them set up segment and it costs you $2,000 a month for segment, that person only spends maybe two days a month, that person go focus on other things. Now you're only spending maybe ten dollars to $20,000 a year on a developer. Now you're spending maybe another $20,000 on segment if you're a big company. That's a total cost of $40,000 compared to $150,000, right? So that's nearly a 3x multiple if you want to go the old way. Really nice. Uh, that's an interesting side, uh, side topic. Uh, thank you for explaining it uh, that, that well. You clearly know your, your shit. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> so, so now that we have a uh, step four, so now we have the engineers who are actually setting up things and, and they are doing it using uh, agile methodology. So they do a one week, sp one week sprint every month uh, to implement metrics as you go. You test them, you create reports. What is the typical next step then? Yeah, so once you start getting all the integration done, I mean, auditing could be considered step part of step three of getting that stuff done. Whenever the engineers get any of this stuff done, you need to make sure that you audit it in a staging environment and make sure that the data is clean. That is the biggest place that people go wrong is they just trust engineering to do the integration and then they high five and they move on. The problem is, is that you have multiple people working on these tools and if one bit of code is written wrong, it could cause havoc in all of your stuff. So I just want to stress, you definitely want to start doing the auditing. Now, to kind of go to the next step past that auditing, like you had talked about building reports, you're obviously going to want to create reports for your KPIs. That's the first place to start. Start very, very simple. Do not create reports for everything. Make sure that you're just looking at your funnel. You're creating your initial dashboard to get your KPIs. That's really going to be the next step is trying to get value and create insights out of the new tools that you have. And that's probably where some of the biggest struggle happens. I mean, formerly being the head of marketing at Kissmetrics, I obviously have an insider's view of what it's like to be at one of these companies. And really, I mean, a problem that all analytics companies struggle with is getting people to use the reports and to derive at insights out of those reports. That's a huge area that companies need to focus on. And it's really hard because only 2% of all marketers, and this is a fact that was put out uh, by the CMO survey, only, and excuse me, it's actually 3%, only 3% of companies feel that they can actually connect marketing practice back to analytics based upon the talent that they have. That means 97% of companies are unable to connect marketing practice back to analytics due to a lack of talent. So as a company, you really have to self-educate yourself on that analytics side of the business and connect that to marketing practice. Because if you can't, you're just not data-driven. You can lie to yourself and say you are, but you're not. You have to be data-driven.
So what would you recommend those marketers to, to learn and, and where should they learn? That's a great question. So there's definitely a lot of places online where you can learn. I mean, Google Analytics offers free courses. You can go to platforms like Udemy, which has a ton of courses. There's a mixed panel course offered by uh, my buddy Ruben, which I think is on Udemy for free. Um, there's other courses that people offer about amplitude and kiss metrics across Udemy and things like that. Uh, I really do think Udemy does a good job at those. But there's a lot of these class platforms out there, right, that you can check out. Uh, I'll be doing a course for the CXL Institute after the new year about how do you set up the entire marketing stack, not just the analytics tool, which will walk you through how do you do your analytics spec all the way through how do you integrate your marketing automation tool. But there's plenty of resources online. But I will say this. Where I learned was I sat down and I read Kissmetrics and Mixpanel's documentation from front to back. And this was years ago. We're talking seven years ago now that I sat down, knew I had to do this for my company to get data-driven, and just read all their documentation and then played with the tool until I figured it out. And now I'm one of the best in the industry because I took the time to understand that documentation. I think that's a great, I think that's a great, uh, a great next step. Read documentation, uh, create stuff, try to dig into the data yourself, get insights. It's not going to take one day to get into the level where like Danny's, for example, uh, it's going to take months or even years, but you have to start and, and you have to get in yourself. I think you can learn so much from Udemy unless you, you actually implement it in your business and, and try it and read the reports. It's, it's not going to work out, right? Yeah, definitely need it. People learn by doing. Um, it was our tagline at Code School. Um, where I, where I was a, a big proponent of analytics. So, um, definitely test it out on anything that you can get it set up, spin it up, play with it, break it, see how to break things. You're going to make mistakes. We find booby traps all the time, still in analytics tools. Documentation is typically wrong. Something isn't conveyed right, uh, or explained in the way that you might understand it. So understand that you're going to make mistakes no matter what. And that's okay. That's part of it. And if your boss gets on your case for making a mistake, tell them to shut up and learn it themselves. That's a great way to end the step-by-step -step, uh, uh, <laughs> methodology uh, together. That's step number six. Tell your boss to, to shut it. Um, right. <laughs> Just a little bit more about you, because as I mentioned at the start from the LinkedIn, you do have a lot of experience, even though you're adding a lot of consulting kind of um, jobs in, into LinkedIn. But you, So you're the CMO of Effing Amazing, which is an analytics and growth consultancy. You've been consultant for like many companies like Wistia, Contactually, CrowdRise. Before that, you founded a, a startup that was kind of the Yelp for gas stations. Yeah. Uh, you were the head of marketing for Kissmetrics, the VP of growth for Code School. How did you? How many companies did you actually create yourself? Oh, I have no idea, no clue. That's a great question. Uh, I started my first company when I was 14. Uh, that was one of the first online booking agencies for DJs. Uh, I actually represented over 160 different DJs around the world. Um, and then when I ran that company for about five years, and then when I was 19, I sold that company off. Um, and then after that, I kind of laid low for two years and just had some fun. Uh, but since then, I've probably started at least 10 or 15 companies. Some have been good. Some have failed. Um, some have been revenue and pot profit profitable, and I've moved on to other ventures. But right now, I mean, if we looked at it, F Amazing is a company I own that owns two other products. We're starting a clothing line right now. Um, so... I'm just an entrepreneur. I don't know anything else better to do with my time other than to start businesses. So I would have to say in my lifetime, I probably started 20 to 30 different business ideas. Um, I would probably say 15 of those have made it to the point where they've been legally registered. Um, but at the same time, like the clothing line that we're starting here at F and Amazing, which is uh, called Amazing Corpse, 
um, w- that company is is not even a real company, right? It's a domain. It's going to be a Shopify site. We're going to funnel the money through the consulting company. So at that point, it's technically not another company. It's just another brand. Holy shit! Right? That's that's what comes to me when I <laughs> when I when I hear you. That's that's crazy, right? So let let's dig into this. Why are you so driven? Like, what's going on? 14 year old and starting a business why do you yeah. think it's coming from where do you think it's coming from um i obviously i mean I think some of it's just dna um my father is very driven as well and just kind of very tenacious um i'd have to say a lot of it also happened the fact that i grew up very un um unfortunate and the fact that my mom was not very successful uh, i grew up in the ghetto um, my grandparents though on the flip side were very successful so even though i was a kid that was on food stamps and lived in the ghetto Um, my grandparents made sure I went to one of the nicest private schools in all of Pittsburgh. So that contrast of being in a poor community where everybody is struggling in the ghetto to then go to school every single day with the richest kids in that city, um, was a very interesting contrast. Um, and it very much made it. So I understood that there's rich people and there's poor people. If I'm going to choose one side to be on, uh, obviously being on the rich side may be the place that, that I want to be. So That just kind of instilled a little bit of passion in me to want to become better than what I was already in. Uh, I was provided great education, but at the same time, I think my hustle probably just comes from my DNA more than anything. And from all of those experiences and those 30 companies you started, ideas you started, let's say, forgetting about this closing line you, you, you are launching, but let's say um, you want to establish a, a new business right now. I'm giving you that as a task. You're going to start a new business right now with me and we're going to find an idea uh, together right now. Um, uh, you can't use your name, by the way. So you can't use your, your network or your profile. The only thing yeah. you can learn is the, the experience you had uh, and the mistakes you've made. How would you start it again? Like what, what, what would be the first steps you would, you would go through? Well, I mean, the first step you have to do, and we do this with all of the companies that we start, is we do customer validation. We follow the lean startup model or the Steve Blank model, where if we have an idea, we go out and we validate it. We do customer development interviews. We ask people uh, probing questions, which are not steering them to the right answer. We're trying to understand, does this product or does this service actually solve a problem? Um, And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. Hence why we've given up on certain companies. But I would first always start with customer development first to make sure that we're solving a real problem. Do you have any resources to recommend regarding customer development? Yeah, uh, definitely. There's um, one, read the book, uh, Lean Startup. Um, Google Steve, uh, Steve and, is it Steve Blank? Am I saying that right? Steve Blank, right? Steve Blank, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Google Steve Blank and read all of his blog posts. Really, really good. Um, if you Google, I think there's one like Bootstrap Academy. And then if you look it up on YouTube, there's a video. I did a, a, a presentation in front of a crowd about how we do customer development in our process. I mean, it's the same thing that Steve Blank and them do. We just don't use the canvas. Um, you have, I think, Lean Startup. And then there's another one. I can't remember the guy's name. Travis it has like leanstartupboard.com or something like that. But there's definitely, you want to do customer development, interviewing customers. Don't tell them what problem you're trying to solve. Don't tell them the solution. Don't even tell them you have a product. Just ask them questions around the problem. I mean, We created the effing amazing UTM builder. When we did uh, our customer development on that, we interviewed marketers and we said, how do you create UTMs? Why do you create UTMs? How many people on your team create UTMs? What's the problem about how you create UTMs with your team? Uh, And we were able to find out that people just have a problem syncing presets amongst team members. So we created a tool to solve that problem. And now we have 7,000 users who use it on nearly a daily basis. 
Um, so you have to make sure you're solving a real problem. So that's interesting. You would actually frame your customer development interviews within a certain topic. So here you knew that you had a hunch probably that UTM tags were on, were on the best solution available to, to, to track uh, traffic from, from one source to another. And you frame those questions in this particular topic, right? Yeah, you want to make sure that obviously you're asking questions around whatever the topic is that you think that you have a, a solution for. You just don't want to give them the solution, right? If I came to you and said, hey, listen, I got the best ice cream scoop, scooper in the world, you'd be like, cool, that's awesome. But that doesn't tell me whether you actually have a problem scooping your ice cream, right? If you came to me and you're like, hey, $39.99 for the coolest ice cream scooper in the world, I'd be like, I already have a fucking spoon, right? Like, what do I need your spoon for? But you can't understand that unless you ask the question. And then how do you know that your super cool ice cream scooper is even cool, right? Maybe it needs to be hot, right? Like these are the types of things that you find by doing natural and directed uh, customer development. And most people build the wrong thing because they think their problem is the same as everybody else's. And they get so focused in on that. They get tunnel vision and then they create something that nobody wants. That's why so many startups fail. I'm so glad you're saying this, right? Because... <laughs> I believe like th there are a lot of startup entrepreneurs and a lot of people in the industry would still say, don't listen to your customers. They don't know what they want. Now, I do understand that they don't know what they want. If you ask them for a solution, they are not going to be able to say, oh, I wish I could have this, this UTM builder that enables me to, to sync with my team or on that kind of stuff. But I do believe that if you listen to them the right way, asking them questions the right way, as you said, based on problems, not on solutions, you will get the insights you want. So... I find that completely bullshit, this, this kind of idea that you should listen to them. And there's also this idea that, you know, Steve Jobs from, from, from Apple never listened to his customers, which is also like the worst thing I've ever heard because this is he not totally true. Did. Exactly. He totally did. Steve Jobs listened to the amount of revenue that he made. And when there was an issue with revenue, he fixed it. And his customers purchased specific products. He may not have ever done focus groups himself. But he looked at the revenue and the money he was making. And if something failed or succeeded, that told him which direction to go. But beyond that, he, he, you know, they set up NPS surveys in every single of the Apple store. They do focus groups, not even uh, for, for years. They track, you know, how people react with their product. You know, it, it's, it's so funny to still hear that, oh, they, they haven't, you know, they're not listening to their customers and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's really funny. Um, so that's interesting. I wasn't actually expecting you to say this. Um, so you're both analytically driven. You're both like you're also driven by empathy and customer development. What would be the next the next step once you usually have like you validated this this problem? What do you usually typically do after that? Next step for us is always design. We don't code. Coding is the last thing that we do. Um, what we want to do is get mockups, get it actually designed in uh, an app like Envision. Envision app is really really good. It's actually how I raised money for my last company. We didn't even have a product yet. We went in from customer development phase right into design. Had that all put in Envision, we then went out with an Envision app and raised money. Uh, and everybody thought it was a real app because I was demoing it like it was a real app, but they couldn't tell the difference. Uh, obviously, we, we didn't lie. We told them that it wasn't built yet. Um, but we went through and then did customer development and customer validation with those mockups that we had in Envision. Our customers gave us great insights. They told us that this isn't understandable. This doesn't make sense. I don't know what this tool does. And then we refined that design and made it so there was something they understood and something they would use, then went to development. And I think a lot of companies immediately start developing and they think about design second. 
And that can get you in a lot of trouble because you need to make sure that your UI, your user interface, has good UX, right? Good user experience. And if it doesn't, in this day and age, it's harder and harder to get traction. So definitely start with design and mockups before you go code. So customer development, once you know that your problem we're solving, you start designing and mocking up and you will show, you would actually show that to, to potential customer or to beta testers, like just to see how they react with this prototype, right? Absolutely. And I, don't get me wrong. There's some companies that have to go to code first, right? Like I totally get it. We built a data enrichment project two years ago. Uh, that product ended up failing and we shut it down. There was no way to show its value without going to code because there was new UI, no UI for it. But in most cases, you're creating a product which people touch and feel and click. You start with design before you go build it. You, you can still design the process and how it works. You can still go through, you know, how the product would, will help you make your life better and all this kind of stuff, right? So even if it's a interface-less type of product. Um, okay, so you show those mockups, you, you, you improve the design, and then you just code it and you launch it and then happy days, right? Yeah, we try to always get a couple customers on board before we really build a tool. And we have a couple customers that basically help us validate things as we build it. They beta test it. Uh, we're working with uh, three of the largest rap artists in the world with our UTM tool, right? You would never think that a rap artist would use a UTM tool. Well, their agency does. So we've partnered with them, gave them a free license. This is going to give us mass volume of people clicking on the links that we have and processing our system. Now we can actually test the tool, make sure it works for those people, and we build it around their use cases. So as we go through development sprints, we launch new features, they give us great insights on, hey, this wasn't as well, uh, doesn't work as well as I thought it was going to, this works as well as I thought it was going to, and we actually give those people free access to the tool. We have other clients that we make pay for it to get beta access, it just depends on your business uh, and what your business objectives are. Like if you're trying to raise VC money, you probably want cash, um, but definitely find some beta customers to make sure that they can help you validate that tool as you build it. This is, I don't know if you've heard of Hojar, the Hojar story, but this is how Hojar started as well. They did the exact same process that Absolutely. you that you laid. So it's interesting to hear. And I'm inter I'm, I'm really interested in in the answer to uh, to my next question. Um, I think you're going to surprise me. At least try to surprise me. Um, wh why do you think marketers have a bad reputation in general? Because it's too easy to become a marketer. Anybody who has an idea can say they're a marketer, and that's typically the problem. Is there's not one, marketing in the traditional school world, so high school to college, they do not, they cannot keep up with how fast marketing is changing. So the concepts that you learn in marketing in college are no longer applicable to the world that you and I live in. Now, that obviously spits out a lot of marketers who have creative ideas, which are basically old now. Uh, some of the fundamentals are the same. But anybody can say they're a marketer because they have an idea and they know how to put pink on a white piece of paper, and that's going to be an ad. Um, there's no barrier to entry, uh, and that's the reason why there's just so many bad marketers out there. Um, but at the same time, that's the reason why you have to go with people that you know have a lot of experience and you can trust. So, uh, and more particularly, how would you define a good marketer? How would you test that this person is a good marketer? You definitely want to look at their history, right? When clients come and talk to me and they want to better understand why should they choose me or our consulting company, I tell them to just look at my credentials and look at the companies that I've worked with do reference checks on me, look at our testimonials, look at our case studies. Also asking the clients we failed on, right? I could say it loudly, right? Contactually was not our best project ever, right? We did everything in our power to make that project successful, but there was not necessarily an alignment on both sides of the party on what the project was supposed to be at the end of the day. 
So if you can ask a marketer, hey, what has been successful? That's great. They're always going to tell you what's successful. But don't be hesitant to also say, hey, what projects have failed? I have at least three projects that I can say to a client, like, this is what happened. This is how it failed. This is how we've changed our process to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, these are the things that we learned from it. And these are the things they learned from it. And I can very easily say what my failures are. If somebody tries to hide their failures, you know there's a big problem. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or 50 years? Great question. Great, great, great question. The biggest thing that marketers need to learn today, first one is going to be coding, right? You have got to understand how it works. You don't need to become an engineer. You do not need to be somebody that writes JavaScript, but you need to be able to read it. You need to be able to see it on a page or in a browser and be able to understand that this is what's actually happening. I think coding is going to be one of the most important things for marketers. The newest marketer that I just hired at my company, big reason why we hired him, because he knows how to code. He's not an engineer, but he, he can get dirty inside that code. Next thing is going to be you have to know how to analyze data. You've got to learn how to use Excel. You've got to learn how to use these analytics tools. Because right now, what's happening is everything is going to personalization. Everything is moving to a one-to-one -one conversation. If you don't understand how the code works and you don't know how to analyze the data, you're never going to be able to do personalization. So you really have to understand those two things or people like me are going to put you out of business. <laughs> What are the top three resources you would recommend to marketers? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, so I definitely think growthhackers.tv is a good uh, resource for marketers to learn from other growth hackers. There's definitely some good interviews on there. Um, that is definitely a really, really good resource. I would definitely recommend, once again, signing up to a lot of blogs. Growthhackers.com is another one that Basically, good content always services to the top. There's always good, fresh ideas there. So definitely read that. I mean, I didn't get my training in marketing from a, a college. Uh, I barely even graduated high school. I almost dropped out because I ran a successful company. I've learned all of my marketing from the Internet. I'm a self-taught marketer and very good at it now. So definitely stay on top of things like that. And I would say as the last resource, uh, depending on the vertical you're in, I would say a Udemy, uh, a CXL Institute, Uh, these types of companies are going to teach you the things that you need to know, not only from a marketing perspective, but also from a technical perspective uh, and an analytics perspective. So I would definitely say to check that stuff out. Dan, you've, you've been absolutely amazing. I've learned a lot uh, from you in the last uh, 45 minutes. Um, how can people connect with you, uh, contact you, learn from you? Absolutely. So please check out fnamazing.com. We have a lot of resources on our blog. We also have a resources section full of webinars and as well as downloadable PDFs. If you want to get in contact with me, super simple. Once again, it's dan at fnamazing.com. And if you get bored, do me a favor. Just Google FNUTM and go down, download our Chrome extension. Uh, it will really help you build UTMs, sync them across your teams, uh, and make your analytics just that much more effective. Dan, that's a great way to end it. I'm definitely going to try it out. Thank you so much once again. Awesome. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as a -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you 
my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.